I'm going to go down to seat. I uh, love that song, Speak, O Lord. I actually told Aiden this week, I said, man, we could do that as the final song going into the sermon every week uh, if our propensity as people wasn't to make rituals out of things. Uh, but that's really our heart and our desires. We want God to speak uh, to us. I, I'm keenly aware of the reality. I have no power to change any person in this room, but I'm also equally aware of the fact that God can do just that. And that's why we want to open God's word and let God speak uh, to his people and have his way amongst us this morning. So get your Bibles out if you have them, Esther 2. If you've got a phone or a tablet that you use, get that out. I'm going to trust you're looking at the scriptures and not checking Facebook or playing a game. Uh, no meaningful sports are happening right now, so it doesn't matter uh, in terms of checking in on that. If you don't have a Bible and you don't have an app on your phone, we have Bibles in the back uh, that you can use if you don't own a Bible. That's our gift to you. <clears throat> Second week of our five-week series God at work uh, through the book of Esther. Let me just begin to move our hearts and our minds forward this morning by posing this question. Have you ever been loyal to someone? Have you ever been faithful to someone or something and there's no recognition that comes from it? You ever been there? Yeah, you ever been faithful to, to someone or something? There's, there's no acknowledgement. There's no appreciation. Maybe it's a difficult relationship. Maybe it's your marriage that you've been faithful and loyal to and your spouse fails to see it. Maybe it's a family relationship, a sibling, a parent, an aunt, uncle, cousin, whatever it may be. Maybe it's a friendship. Uh, maybe you've invested 10, 20, 30, 40 years of your life into a company or to a career. And uh, that company or that, uh, that, that organization has not seen a fit to, re- to respond to your loyalty and your faithfulness in the way that you would deem appropriate. Maybe it's a hard season of ministry or maybe just a difficult season of life in general. But probably all of us at some level can relate to this reality of I've been faithful, I've been loyal, and it has not been reciprocated. I was thinking about loyalty this week. I'm sure the draft, the NFL draft, had uh, some bearing on this particular example I'm going to use, but um, one of my all-time favorite football players is a guy named Adrian Wilson. Anyone know who Adrian Wilson is? Okay, a few of you. True football fans know who Adrian Wilson is, okay? Because this guy played for the Cardinals when they were awful, which is most of the Arizona Cardinals' existence, especially since they landed in Arizona. If you don't know, I'm from Arizona. Die-hard Cardinals fan for a few years. I was the only Cardinals fan that lived on the planet. Uh, but Adrian Wilson... Adrian Wilson was drafted by the Cardinals in 2001. At that point in time, they'd been in Arizona about 12 years, and, and they were awful every season. I mean, if they went 6-10, and 10, that was a really good year. And Adrian Wilson, a defensive player, he was a safety, and he was a darn good one at that. And so um, in the first couple years that he was with the Cardinals, he continued to progress, got better and better each year until his third or fourth season. He was one of the best safeties in the league. And the truth is, he could have gone and played just about anywhere. Any organization would have happily taken this guy. But I remember, I remember, in fact, my sister had sent me the link to this article. Becky and I were living overseas at the time. I remember he was about to become a free agent, or he was, he was coming towards that. And I remember his, reading about his press conference where he talked about, I don't want to go play somewhere else. I want to be a part of changing the culture here in Arizona. 
And as a diehard Cardinals fan, I can look back at that and go, that was the tipping point. That was the turning point in that organization because up until that point, any good free agent left. Because you can get paid anywhere, but you can't win everywhere in the NFL. And that was the beginning of the change of that organization. And so in a business where loyalty was a fool's errand, you had a guy moving into the prime of his career that said, I'm going to stay with an organization that hasn't even flirted with being good consistently because I want to be part of changing this organization and this culture. Now, I know, right, the, 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 the illustration breaks down in that he was paid well, right? He, he was compensated well for what he did. But here's what I want you to understand. They didn't turn around the next season and start winning. It was three or four years later before they started to be um, consistently good. There wasn't an immediate payoff. And that's exactly the same dynamic that we see unfolding in the book of Esther. That there's, you're going to see loyalty. You're going to see faithfulness. You're going to see a guy doing the right thing. And there, not only is there not an immediate payoff, in fact, um, you have a lot of difficulty that's going to come before there's any payoff whatsoever. And so what I want to do, I want to read the entirety of the text that we're going to look at here this morning. Not nearly as long of a text as what uh, we, we endeavored to cover last week. Um, and just by way of review, uh, what we looked at last week in short was a series of events that led God to putting Esther, who was a Jew, um, onto the throne as queen in uh, the Persian Empire. And so where last week, so much of what was happening in the book of Esther really functioned to give us a setting and understanding what's happening. This week is really where the crisis and the drama and the plot begins to be uh, developed. So Esther 2.19, and I'm going to read through the end of chapter 3, would encourage you to follow along. uh, If for no other reason, just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up. This is actually what God's word says. Here's uh, what God's word has for us this morning. Verse 19 of chapter 2. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's units who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. We don't know why they're angry. We don't know what's going on. We just know uh, that they're angry. And they're going to do something to the king. Verse 22, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, literally impaled on a stick. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. The king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Like, man, why won't you bow down? Why won't you do this? What's going on? What's preventing you from doing this? And it wasn't a one-time thing. Notice what verse 4 tells us. When they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So the impetus or the the reason, the motivation that Mordecai is not bowing down to Haman is rooted in him being a Jew. And I think there's a lot more to that that we'll unpack here in a few moments, not him just Well, I'm not going to bow down and worship this guy. I don't think that's what's actually happening. Verse 5. 
And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. In fact, look at the lengths to which he's willing to go based upon this fury. Verse 6, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So he begins to scheme this plot starting in verse 7. And the author tells us this, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And so they're casting these lots. It'd be similar to us like rolling dice over and over and over again to try to discern and distinguish, okay, when are we going to do this? Verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, listen to what he says. Listen to the half-truths. Listen to the manipulation and the distortion and the twisting of what is true versus what he's actually saying. There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. True. Their laws are different from those of every other people. In some respects, true. And they do not keep the king's laws. Not so much. So that it is not to the king's profit to, to tolerate them. Definitely not true. If it please the king... Let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge over the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. I mean, this is so disturbing. I told you last week that King Asuerus was a piece of work. I mean, this just proves it. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. The signet ring was essentially equivalent to his signature. And handing it to Haman, Haman had unlimited, unbridled authority to do whatever with respect to this. And he hands it over to him. And the king says to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were seven, summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Asuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. So these letters go out to the far reaches of every province of the entirety of the Persian Empire. Right, look at verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. Here's the instructions. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. Would you like to be a Jew on that day? The 13th day of the 12th month, month which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. We're going to kill you all, and we're going to take everything that you've got. All of this rooted in Haman's hatred of Mordecai. Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And then check out the second half of verse 15, such a striking contrast of what's happening in the palace versus what's hap- which, which is happening in the capital city, and, and I would imagine throughout the entirety of the empire. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. Can't you see him? Clink, clink, cheers. What a great day of work. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. How about before we go any further, we just pause, uh, we pray, and we ask God to give us wisdom.
uh, with respect to his word and to teach us. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that as your people, we can be assembled, we can gather under the truth of the scriptures, that it's through your word that you speak to us. And so, God, that's exactly what we're asking you to do this morning, is to come and to speak to your people. And God, not only for us, but I pray for Pastor Ryan Bestelmeyer and for Hope West. I thank you for Uh, my friend and partner in the gospel. I thank you for his faithful ministry. And God, I pray that this morning that you'd be speaking through Pastor Ryan and to the people of Hope West as well. That they would hear clearly from you, Lord, in the same way that we long to hear clearly from you, Lord. And so, God, we pray that you would come and have your way with us. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would meet with us, whether we need to be exhorted or uh, convicted, God, whether we need repentance or or encouragement, whether we need to be reminded of a blessing, or whether we need to be challenged in some manner or some area of our life. God, we pray that you would come and have your way amongst us now. Open your word, unfold it to our hearts and our minds uh, to see, to hear, to believe, to know, and to respond. We pray this, God, we pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Title of the message this morning is Unrewarded Loyalty. It's unrewarded loyalty, something that we'll see uh, very clearly play out uh, here in the text. And really, uh, what, what I want you to get Right out of the gate, where we're going this morning is this, is that God will honor faithfulness in His time and in His way. Did you hear that? God will honor faithfulness in His time and in His way. So in in God's economy, the title of this message is just flat out wrong. But in the perspective of where we find ourselves, both in this story and, and really with respect to our lives, I think it's a really helpful thing for us to be reminded of this, this perceived sense of unrewarded loyalty. And so we come to the text and really three episodes from the beginning or the end of chapter two through uh, chapter 3 this morning that we'll look at. Here, here are really the three episodes, three scenes, if you will, of this drama that are unfolding. You have Mordecai's unrewarded loyalty. Uh, you have Haman's promotion and his hatred. And then you have uh, Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. That's the whole of the story. And much like last week, we'll spend a lot of our time walking through the story itself. And then we'll loop back around at the end and just spend maybe the last 10, 12 minutes of our time talking about what this story means for us, how we apply this, what do we do with what we've seen here in the text. So let's just begin to walk through here uh, these episodes and let God's word begin to speak into our lives. Uh, First thing, uh, in chapter 2, 19 through 23, you have Mordecai's unrewarded loyalty. So look at verse 19. We're told that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. The king's gate was a place uh, where law and business were conducted. If you remember in the book of Ruth, that's where Boaz went to redeem Ruth. This this is where a lot of the official matters of the state would unfold. And and, and so we recognize that that's part of what's happening. Another thing that we recognize and realize about Mordecai is that he is most likely a part of the king's court. And so he's there. At this particular time, and then the author gives us this parenthetical thought, this anecdotal piece about Esther, and it's crucial to the story 
uh, down the road, but not necessarily at this particular moment. In verse 20, he just tells us this. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So let me just make a quick note here of Esther's obedience. Sometimes, sometimes in biblical narrative, when you come to certain things in the text, they're not necessarily the main thrust of what the author is after, but they're, they're these little nuggets that are so challenging or so um, convicting or so helpful for us. And I think this is certainly one of those places. And, and it's not that it has no place in the story. In fact, even today, we're going to recognize and realize Haman has set out a decree to kill an entire demographic of people, one of whom is the queen. And so it's substantial in that piece. But, but I think for us, part of what we're looking at here is Esther's obedience. We're told again that she, that she did what she was told to do. Now think about this. She's the queen now. If she began to, to do something different than what Mordecai had told her to do, do you really think he has any recourse? Like what is he going to do or what is he going to say that... that, that the queen or the king or anyone else can be like, you know what, Esther, he's right. He's got a point. You got to do what he's telling you to do. That's not going to happen. She's totally free to do her own thing. And yet what we're told is that she has been obedient to what Mordecai has commanded her to do. I mean, this is so counterintuitive to what we are told all the time today. Whether you're aware of it or not, you and I are bombarded by messages over and over and over again that you and I are autonomous, that you and I are in control, that we don't have to be surrendered or submitted to anybody. No one can tell me anything. I'm in control of my own destiny. I can do what I want. I'm accountable to no one. Let me give you an example of this. I was at the gym. This is probably a couple months ago. And a guy was wearing a shirt. Here's what his shirt said. Why be a king when you can be a god? Now, okay, like I, I wish I could sit here and just look at you and be like, I was so appalled when I read that at the affront that it was to Jesus. But you want to know, the first place I went to, this just reveals my issues, is I'm looking at that and I'm going, of all the guys in the gym, you're the last dude in here that should be wearing that shirt. Like, take it off. Not even close to either of those, right? And, and so, I mean, I've got issues too, all right? But, but I don't think, I don't think we've really thought through how this actually plays out, our, our, our current cultural thinking, and the reality that everyone can't be in control of their own destiny. Because the moment you don't do what I want you to do, you've screwed up my destiny. And the same is true on the inverse. And, and I have no ability to control you, and you can't control me. And it's stupid. It's just stupid to think that we can all do that. It doesn't work. Right? There has to be some type of order or structure that exists. And see, that's what God's word gives us is it gives us that structure. And so here's Esther as queen of the most powerful empire on the planet. And she's obedient to the authority that God has put in her life. Loved ones, I got to ask you that same question. Are you obedient to the authority that God has put in your life? Are you obedient to the people that God has placed over you? 
Right, some of you younger people live in, in home with mom and dad, teenagers, right? I mean, this is where you see a lot of this. Are you obedient to your mom and your dad? By the way, mom and dad, you're welcome. Okay, you can take that one home. You're welcome for that one. How about at work? Are you coming under your boss or at school? Are you coming under teachers? Or how about just functioning as, as a member of society and coming under the authorities? See, I think where we get crooked and sideways on this is what we often do as Christians is we confuse the concept of biblical submission with the idea of agreement. Here's what I mean by that. We're all for submission. We're all for coming under the authorities when I agree with what they're telling me. But when I don't agree or I don't like it or it's not what I want, then I have the freedom to push back. No, you don't. Not biblically. I'm not saying that if rulers or leaders are wrong that you can't call them that or expose that. What I'm saying is, is we get confused on this. If you only submit because you like it or it works for you or you're on the same page, that's not biblical submission. You just happen to agree with the people that are over you. Biblical submission, hear me very carefully when I say this. Biblical submission is that I come under the authorities that God has placed in my life even when I don't like it or even when I disagree with it. That is biblical submission. That's what it is. Now, Some of you might not like hearing that. Some of you might be like, well... You can go wherever you want with that. That's just the reality of this. And this is so hard for some of us to hear because it cuts at the very heart and soul of who we are as a society. I don't want to come under anyone. And yet Esther here is obedient. Are you and I obedient to what God has placed in our lives? Okay, that's a a little long for a parenthetical thought. Let's keep moving along here. Um, Notice this, verse 21 through 23, uh, really kind of the main emphasis of this part of the text. You see Mordecai's loyalty. You see his loyalty. And, and, and let's not miss the most obvious detail of what's going on here. It's God's providence that has put Mordecai at this particular place in time to expose this plot. So you don't see God's name mentioned anywhere in here because you don't see it anywhere in the book of Esther. But it's God who put Mordecai there to expose this. This is part of God being at work. And so Mordecai demonstrates his loyalty to the king and that, that, that this, this plot to harm the king, to lay hands on the king, to hurt the king, maybe even kill the king, is foiled but with, with Mordecai going to Esther. Esther goes to the king in the name of Mordecai, exposes this. It's found out to be true. Uh, these guys are eliminated. And it's recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king, but nothing is actually done for Mordecai. And what's crazy is, King Ahasuerus is actually going to be assassinated later in his reign in a similar fashion. So it's, just, it's a similar thing that's actually going to be the end of his life that's going to unfold. Mordecai is loyal. Maybe it's recognized or understood, but it's certainly not acknowledged and it's definitely not rewarded. Which is where so many people often struggle with God. For so many of us, this is our hang-up that we have with God. It's like, I, I did the right thing, and God does not immediately act on your behalf. Now, this is where the rest of the story is helpful for us, right? Because eventually, eventually, we're going to see God act and move and work. But he's not doing it right away. In fact, the, the, the biggest shock and the biggest surprise to this point of the story happens in chapter 3, verse 1, where we're told about a promotion, we're told about an honoring, and as you read that, it should be Mordecai, but it's not. It's Haman. 
So not, not only is Mordecai's loyalty not rewarded, his enemy ends up being the one that is promoted and honored. Let me just ask you, loved ones, what if, what if God chooses to not honor your loyalty and your faithfulness to him for another week? What if it's another month? What if he waits another year or five years or ten years? What if, what if God never honors your loyalty and faithfulness this side of eternity? Does it change who God is? And does it change your response and your willingness to do what God has called you to do? See, I, I think sometimes we can get so short-sighted in our lives, we become so enthralled with what's going on right around us, we lose sight of, of eternity, we lose sight of eternal rewards, we lose sight of the bigger picture in all of this. And we have to see beyond the moment that's right in front of us. And I think it's profound, absolutely profound, that Mordecai here is incredibly loyal to the king and, and nothing is happening in terms of honor or reward for him. And as believers, we should be able to resonate with that because we are encouraged to wait for a greater reward. Mordecai's unrewarded loyalty, of course, we know in the end it's not true. But at this point in the story, that is what's bearing itself out. Secondly, look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. You have Haman's promotion and his hatred. His promotion and his hatred. Verse 1, I've already mentioned this. It's, it's shocking to us. Not that there's a promotion. In fact, anyone in, in uh, the day that this was written would, would completely expect to see some kind of honor and promotion come to the person um, on the heels of this happening to the king and of his life being spared. And so that happens. What's shocking isn't that it happens. It's shocking that it's not Mordecai. But it's Haman who's promoted. And, and, and this is how God is moving the story along, is that Haman is promoted, not Mordecai. And he's put above all the officials who are with him. And so you get to verses 2 through 4, which is really an interesting piece of the Scriptures, and you have Mordecai's refusal to bow. Now, typically what happens is when you look at Mordecai's refusal to bow, you, people tend to go one of two ways with this. Uh, scholars and commentators tend to say, um, you, th- th- there's this very high view of Mordecai, and it's like, well, he was, he was unwilling to bow, and he, he didn't want to honor anyone but, but God alone, and, um, and, and we, they have this really high view of Mordecai. And I think we're reading too much into that. The other side of it is people go to the, the other far extreme and they're like, man, he was just as proud and arrogant as Haman and, and he refused to bow and, and, and he's equally wrong in this. And I think that's unfair as well. See, because in the scriptures, we have multiple times where we have God's people who are honoring the, the authorities and they're doing so without idolatry. You have Abraham with the king of Salem. You have Daniel. Um, we have this all over the place where we see this unfolding. So you, you could honor the authorities without moving to a place of idolatry. Here's what I think is actually going on here. I think you've got some family dynamics, and I think you've got some ethnic dynamics that, that are a major factor into this. In fact, go back, look at verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. You and I read that, and it's like, those are just funny names, and that meant something to someone, but not us. Well, it's about to mean something to us. Go back to chapter 2, verse 5. 
There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. So we know actually quite a bit about these guys' history based on what we were just told. Here's some things that are interesting to make note about Haman. Haman, this word Agagite, there's no people group called the Agags. In fact, Agag was the name that was designated to kings of the Amalekites, much like Pharaoh was designated to the ruler of the Egyptians. So this guy, we know that, that Haman has, um, he, he's from Amalek, descendants of Israel. What do we know about Amalek? Actually, quite a bit. In fact, here's just a few of the more pointed pieces in the Old Testament around the Amalekites. Make note of this. First of all, Exodus 17. This is right after the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt. It's right after they've crossed the Red Sea. They are vulnerable. They're in the wilderness. And the Amalekites come and they attack Israel. In fact, it's later in that same chapter that God goes on to say that he would put the Amalekites out of remembrance for their wickedness towards Israel. Okay, you're starting to see the conflict begin to develop here. Let's flesh it out a little bit further. Here's what God says in Deuteronomy 25 about the Amalekites. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you and did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all the enemies around you and the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget because they did not fear God. This was their consequence. And then if you move ahead to 1 Samuel 15, at this point in time, Saul is king. Saul was given a very specific command. I want you to go into the Amalekites and I want you to destroy all of them and everything that they have. And he goes in and he doesn't do it, does he? He destroys most of them, but he spares the king and is like, man, you know, you, you, get, you ought to see some of this livestock and you ought to see some of these other treasures. And that's that famous passage where Samuel shows up and he goes, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm doing what God told me. And he's like, then what is the bleeding of this sheep that I hear? And it's then and there that God removes his anointing from Saul. So Haman is an Amalekite. Remember last week we talked about Mordecai is a descendant of Saul. Not only is this an ethnic thing, this is a family thing. And while you and I wouldn't necessarily pick up on this as we read this, no doubt people in that day and age would have been like, oh, I can see it. I got it. I get the connection. Mordecai's refusal to bow, maybe it's rooted in, in, in his, because he's a Jew. I don't think it's because he's saying, I can't bow down before someone else. I think he's saying, I will not bow down before an, an Amalekite. I will not bow down before that people group who, who God is going to blot out from the earth. Here's the other thing I want us to catch. Don't miss, don't miss in these verses the power of sin and its effect throughout the generations. Did you catch that? The power of sin throughout all these generations. Because, yes, yeah, God is gracious and he deals with that. And I'm so thankful that things that were issues three or four generations ago in my family aren't issues today. And I hope that my great-grandkids are saying the same thing about me. But I think sometimes, sometimes we're just too casual when it comes to sin and its effects and its impact within our life. Because think about this for a second. Had Saul done what he was told to do, this isn't even an issue in Esther 3. It didn't even happen. 
It was Saul's disobedience. It was Saul's sinfulness. It was Saul's wickedness that even opened the door for this. Now, maybe you can see in your own family history the effects of sin throughout the generations. Maybe, maybe you've suffered under some of those effects. Here's what I would ask you today, not necessarily as you look back. I would ask you as you look forward, what is it? What is it that your family might suffer from? What is it that your descendants might have to live under? Because you are too casual, too indifferent, too apathetic towards some sin in your family today. That's my question for you. When you understand the history of this, when you understand the generations that lived under this because of disobedience back here and we're still suffering over here, we have to ask that same question of ourselves. What is it that my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids are going to suffer under if, if I don't put this thing to death? So you have his refusal to bow. And then you have Haman's just downright hatred for all the Jews. Look at what verse 5 and 6 says. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. I mean, he's crazy. I mean, like he's lost his mind. This guy won't bow. This guy, he's, that guy, he's Jewish, kill them all. crazy. Now, his, pl- his pride had blinded him to think more highly of himself than he ought to. And so he literally goes crazy. Here's what I don't want you and I to miss. The same principle plays out in you and I all the time. Now, it might not be manifested in attempted genocide, but this same delusional effects of sin is going on in your life and in my life every single day. Haman's hatred of the Jews really exposes the delusional effects of sin. Here's just two things to make note of briefly in terms of the delusional effects of sin. This is what's going on inside of you and I and that we got to fight against. One, the delusional effects of sin cause us to think wrongly about ourselves and others. You're going to think wrongly about yourself, usually a a more inflated view of yourself. You're going to think wrongly about others. Either you assume the worst or um, they're not as good as you or there's some self-righteousness or pride or whatever it is. There's some delusional effect or you might inverse it, though that doesn't happen nearly as often. We tend to be much more generous and gracious with ourselves than, than we are with others. Here's the second aspect of the delusional effects of sin. Is sin always, always, always impacts others. It blows my mind how often people go, it's just me, it's just me. It's never just you. It is never, ever just you. Well, I mean, Haman, hey, it's just me and Mordecai. No, it's a whole people group. Loved ones, you got to hear me when I say this. There is always, 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 always collateral damage for sin. Other people will always suffer because of your sin. Do not delude yourself into thinking, hey, this is just me. It's never the case. That's exactly what we see playing out in Hester. In verse 7 through 15, I I, want to just do this quickly to to kind of get to uh, where we finish with this and make sure we have enough time. Um, You have Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. Right? It's rooted in his prejudice. And you see in verse 8 specifically what he's saying about these people. He's not speaking truthfully and honorably about them. Right? He's thinking things that aren't true. 
Uh, in verses 9 through 11, he, he, it's accomplished by greed, his plan to destroy them. I mean, this is crazy. 10,000 talents of silver, that's 375 tons of silver. 750,000 pounds of silver. Now, we don't know the actual monetary value in that day and age, though many people believe this is roughly two-thirds of the annual GDP of the Persian Empire. So I have no idea where Haman's going to come up with all of that money. I'm, I, the assumption is this is what he's going to get as they raid uh, the, the Jews and steal from them. But the king, right, the king doesn't care. He doesn't care about people. He just cares about himself. He's more concerned about the bottom line than he is about those who bear the image of God. And then in verse 15, I mentioned this as we were reading through. I'll just say it briefly here. You have this confusion that's, that, that's unfolding in, in the capital city of Susa while the king and Haman are just living it up. This chaos. And at this point now, the, the story of Esther is really moving. I mean, you've got legitimate conflict, legitimate drama, legitimate crisis because the people of God have just wholesale been sentenced to death which is where we stop for today. Probably not the worst thing for us to sit in that for a week. Here's, here's how I want to tie this together. What do we do with this? What, what do we do with this story? What do we do with this? And, and there's plenty for us to draw from. Um, and I want, to, I want to frame these applications in the form of questions because questions require each and every one of us to answer them. So here we go. I got five questions, five questions, and we're done. Here's the first. Is obedience a part of your life? What do we do with this text? Well, we have to ask about obedience. Is obedience a part of your life? And when I say obedience, I'm not talking about religious rules. I'm not talking about um, that. I mean, oftentimes when we hear obedience, especially in a religious context, we want, we want to run right to the place of rules or duty and, and, and um I'm good, so God loves me. This contractual engagement or this conditional uh, aspect that we have between ourselves and the Lord. And what, what I'm saying here is, is obedience a part of your life. What I'm driving at is that idea of submission. Am I submitted? Am I surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ? Does God have full control of what's going on inside of me? One of the things you'll hear us say from time to time around here is love drives discipline. Discipline does not drive love. Because I love someone, I will do what they tell me to do. But doing something will not necessarily make me love someone more. In fact, a lot of times it will make you resent them. Because it's not rooted in love. And that's where people get crooked and sideways when it comes to this God thing. Is that It's not rooted in love. It's rooted in some obligation. I have to do this and then God will love me. No doubt. No, or no wonder there's... Um, so much confusion on this in our day and age. Is obedience a part of your life? I first love God, and my love for God compels me to do the things that God calls me to do. Is that true? Secondly, are you living with eternal rewards in view? Are you living with eternal rewards in view? Are you living with a view of eternity? It, 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 can you see beyond what's right in front of you and today? Can you see the bigger, broader picture? And Mordecai's loyalty to the king and, and faithfulness and favor to the king and the subsequent absence of any immediate reward is a great reminder for you and I. It's a great reminder for us 
that we await a greater reward. Do we live that way? It's easy for us to sit in church and go, amen, that's great, preach it. But on Tuesday afternoon at work, am I living that way? Thursday morning when my son or my daughter is driving me insane, am I living that way? When I have to have a hard conversation, am I living that way? Or do we live very much in the moment? Number three, am I aware of sin's impact in my life? Let me just suggest at the outset, and and I don't say this condescendingly, I don't say this to be obnoxious, I'm just being honest, I don't think any person in this room can honestly answer this question yes. Not consistently. Far too often we're deluded by our own self-righteousness. Am I truly aware of sin's impact in my life? Do you recognize, do you realize just how devastating sin is? Do do, do you realize the effects that it has upon you? Can you even identify the ways that it makes you delusional in your thinking about yourself and others? Can you identify the collateral collateral damage that's caused by it? Do I have a healthy understanding of sin and how it is at work and what it is costing and what it is destroying? We need to be reminded that it was your sin, my sin, our sin that required Christ to go to the cross. The seriousness of our sin. And the moment, the moment that I want to begin to justify or rationalize or it's not that big of a deal, you've proven the point. We don't realize how serious this is. And you look at this account and you see these guys doing these things and it's like they're clueless. They're clueless to the effects and the impacts of sin. Number four, is there a pursuit of humility in your life? Is there a pursuit of humility in your life? I mean, so much, so much of this account is rooted in the pride of various individuals. You have the guards, you have Haman. I mean, you could argue that Mordecai uh, had pride. The king has pride. I mean, everyone in this account, there's pride that we see welling up in them. And yet, as followers of Jesus Christ, our response and what God calls us to is to be men and women who walk in humility. And we do that because we're aware of who we are. And more importantly, we're aware of what Christ has done. Let's just press this humility thing here for a minute. In fact, here's four questions specific to humility that I want to ask just briefly. Here's a good way to to get at and arrive at humility and figure out where you're at in your own life. Number one, am I aware of my own shortcomings and issues? Am I aware of my own shortcomings and issues? Can I see my flaws? Can I see my sin? Can I own them? Um, can I identify them? Can I speak clearly to them? Do I realize my own need for Jesus? Do I see my need? Now, I'm sure if I sat down with each of you individually, you could articulate at great lengths your spouse's need or your sibling's need or your children's need. You definitely could, your coworkers and your bosses and your neighbors, man, point by point, all the ways that they need Jesus. Great. I don't care about that. What I'm curious about is can you identify your need for him? Because you're aware of your shortcomings, your sin, your issues. One of the things, one of the things someone, I, I wish someone would have told me before we had kids is how often I would fail my children. If you're 
in this room and you don't have kids yet, let me just burst that bubble. You're going to fail them regularly. And by regularly, I mean like all the time. Because you're broken and you're sinful. And no one told me just how often I would fail my kids. But one of the things, one of the things, because it happens often, is um, when I seek my kids' forgiveness, one of the things I like to tell them is, Daddy needs Jesus just like you need Jesus. Do you know that to be true of yourself? Are you aware of your own shortcomings and your own issues? Secondly, am I gracious with others and their shortcomings and issues? It's the other side of this. See, because only, only a person where humility is, is, is actively at work within them is going to be gracious with others because they recognize how God has been gracious with them. Did you hear that? Only a person where humility is actively at work within them will be gracious with others because they are aware of how God has been gracious with them. Now, this is a very hard but necessary word that we have to hear this morning. If you aren't, listen, loved ones, if you are not gracious with others, you most likely have an inflated view of yourself and you most definitely have a deficient view of God. Let me say that again. If you are not gracious with others, you most likely have an inflated view of yourself, and you most definitely have a deficient view of God. You cannot identify what God has done for you. And so you look at others, and you have an expectation, or you have a way of thinking that you will impose on them, that God has not imposed upon you. Am I gracious with others in their shortcomings and issues? Thirdly, do I have a realistic sense of myself? Similar to these other two, but in short, can I see who I am in light of who God is? Finally, this. You might be like, where are you going with this one? With respect to humility, how sweet and precious is the gospel to you? How sweet and precious is the gospel to you? One of the things that, that I'm fond of saying around here is that prayer is the evidence that I believe the gospel. Right? Prayer is the evidence that I believe the gospel. If I'm not a man who prays, if you're not a man or a woman who prays, I don't, you don't believe the gospel because you don't believe your need for Jesus. Right? But if prayer is the evidence that I believe the gospel, humility is the, is the evidence that the gospel is actively at work within me, that it lives within me. And so when we ask this question, how sweet and precious is the gospel to you? See, in the life of someone where humility is being exhibited, it's sweet because I know that I need it. I need it. If I ask that question, how sweet and precious is the gospel to you? Eh, it's all right. You don't get it. You don't get it. You, you don't get that you're lost. You don't get that you're broken. You don't get how heinous and wicked our sin is. You don't get how righteous Christ is. You don't get it. If the gospel is anything less than the most treasured, awesome, incredible thing there is, you don't get it. And I don't, I don't prone to raise the voice and increase the intensity. It's not out of anger. It's out of a desire for you to get how substantial and significant this is. How precious and sweet is the gospel to us. It's the only hope that we have. Only hope that we have. Final thing. Is there any prejudice in my heart? Is there any prejudice in my heart? When Becky and I lived in Europe, one of the things that was so surprising to me was just to realize that pretty much everyone hates everyone. 
as far as people groups go. It was, it was baffling to me. Where our students, you'd be like, oh, yeah, we, yeah well, we hang out, but we can never hang out outside of school. Why? Well, because I'm Japanese and he's Korean. We hate each other. What? I mean, like, everyone hates everyone. And what was helpful in that was realizing, see, racism is just a symptom of a universal issue, which is the sin inside of our hearts. And so we have to ask this question of prejudice because it, we're pro- all of us are prone to this. I mean, I'm not surprised that we see it in the world, but I am surprised how often I see it in followers of Jesus. And so ask yourself, can I say that I love people the way that God loves them? Is there any group of people, any demographic, that based upon that particular demographic, that my view of them is inconsistent with God's view of them being image bearers of his? And if that's true, repent. Seek the Lord and ask for his forgiveness and ask God to help you (coughs) to see people the way that he sees people. Unrewarded loyalty. In the end, it's simply not true. But in your limited perspective, in my limited perspective, where we find ourselves right now here today, that's what's in front of us, not only in the book of Esther, but in our lives. But a day is coming. A day is coming. Oh, that day is coming. Where all the toil, all the difficulty, all the struggle. God's going to deal with it and God's going to honor our faithfulness and loyalty. Loved ones, will you and I be men and women who are loyal to our God. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask, God, we ask that you would help us. Help us to be loyal. Help us to be faithful. God, we are keenly aware of the reality that if left to ourselves, we couldn't do it. Maybe some of us aren't keenly aware of that reality, and and we need to be reminded of that. God, I pray for all of us that as we look at this story, as we identify your hand at work, as we see how you're moving, um, how you're setting this story up, and even the crisis that faced the Jews and left uh, to be slaughtered and annihilated, and yet in that you're at work. So God, help us as we look at our lives. Some of us find ourselves in just great places. Other, others of us find ourselves in just, this has been such a difficult week. It's been such a hard road. Or for the last month, number of months or years, life has been so painful, so arduous, so difficult. And God, I just pray for each and every one of us that today we'd walk out of here saying, God, I want to be faithful. I want to be loyal. I want to be committed. Regardless of whether or not you give me some of the goodies of this world. I will hold out, I will hold out, I will hold out for eternity if need be. God, would that be true of each and every one of us? We pray this in your name. Amen.